This is the Chapel Real Estate Show, episode number eight. Welcome to the Chapel Real Estate Show, your source for the latest real estate information so you can buy, sell, and invest with the best in Texas. Whether you're a first-time buyer, a current homeowner, or a seasoned investor, you've come to the right place. We're here to simplify all things real estate so you can achieve your goals of property ownership with your hosts, Daniel and Roger Chappell. Good morning, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Chapel Real Estate Show, your source for the latest information so that you can buy, sell, and invest with the best. I'm your host, Daniel Chappell, joined by my co-host today, Roger Chappell. And today we're going to have uh, an extra special guest for you guys. So uh, we've got Shelly Rodocker. She's a very respected mortgage lender in our area. She works with Fairway Independent Mortgage, and she is an absolute expert in the field. Um, she has done miracles for some of our clients before in the past. So we're really excited to bring her to you guys and bring some really excellent information about the mortgage lending process to you guys today. So, uh, you know, hey, Dad, uh, why don't you uh, introduce Shelly for us and give her a good morning for us? Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to our eighth podcast and our first guest. Uh, Shelly Rodocker and I started working together almost five years ago now, uh, not long after both of us got licensed. And we have done, I don't even know, I've lost track of how many deals we've done together over the years, uh, but a, a number of them. And Shelly has always been one of these people that we can go to to get the answers uh, that we may need right away, whether she works with the client or not. She's always been extremely helpful to us and our team. So Shelly, we wanted to welcome you uh, and thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, uh, so Shelly, what are, sorry, go ahead, Dad. Uh, Shelly, I was going to say, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Well, so I have been in the mortgage industry for about five years. Prior to that, I sat on your side of the desk as a realtor. So I have some perspective there. Um, I've I'm in the Georgetown, Texas area. I've been here for working here for about four out of the five years that I've had in the industry. And, um, and I just, I, I love being here. I love what I do. I really enjoy helping clients, um, you know, be able to realize their uh, homeownership dreams and do whatever it takes in the process to get them to the, the closing table. So. Awesome. So uh, what, what kind of made you make that transition from real estate into mortgage lending? What was kind of the tipping point for you? Well, so, you know, so Roger's the master negotiator, okay? And that was always the thing that I just, I just stripped my gears, kept me up at night, trying to do those negotiations that come so natural for, for Roger. But um, so I, I had stepped away from the industry for just a little bit, and then I was going to get back in. And I thought, well, do I want to be a realtor? Do I want to be a lender? What do I want to do? And so um, I had been in the finance industry for a bit. And so I kind of married the two, my real estate experience plus my finance experience. And then it just all kind of came together in lending. And, and, I, and I love being able to work with, um, you know, one side of the table that I can, I can go to bat for them and do whatever it takes to get them from start to close and uh, not have to worry about the the stuff that Roger's so good at. I can leave that to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the biggest thing is to know to play to your strengths, right? So, I mean, hey, I think I think you found yourself a really great niche. You you do very very well in what you do. So that's awesome that you were able to find that segue into into mortgage lending. Um, so. As, uh, as you all know, every episode, we give you guys what we like to call the chapel chunk. It's going to be your tip for the day. 
Um, so dad, why don't I go ahead and pass it over to you to give our listeners the chapel chunk. Uh, thanks, Daniel. So the chapel chunk today is very short, sweet and simple. Find yourself a local lender. In today's market, our, our offers are so competitive that one of the things that a lot of listing agents are looking for is to make sure that they have not only that the buyer, uh, the prospective buyer has not only a local lender, but a local lender with a great reputation. So there are a number of lenders, just like real estate agents, there seems to be on every street corner. Uh, but for those of us that are professionals in our line of work, we know who can get the job done and who has a consistent track record of doing so. So with that said, uh, obviously, Shelly is a great partner of uh, the Chapel Realty Group. But in addition to that, she's also uh, a local realtor, I mean, a local uh, mortgage lender that we know we can rely on. And that kind of helps give us a little bit of boost when we're submitting our offers. Awesome. Yeah, that is a great tip. I mean, in today's market, any little bit that you can do to kind of strengthen your offer helps. And I think uh, definitely having a mortgage lender with a good reputation that knows how to get the deal done is extremely crucial in making sure that your offer looks a little bit stronger when presented. Um, well, thank you, Shelly, for providing us with the uh, with the, today's chapel chunk. You know, I know uh, Roger delivered it, but it's information that we wouldn't have without your support. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so now that that's out of the way, let's kind of jump into the nitty gritty of today's show. So uh, Shelly, let's assume we're talking to like a brand new first time home buyer, somebody who's completely inexperienced in the process. And uh, let's kind of get them started to in, in understanding what does it take to become a good borrower um, and be able to purchase a home? Sure. Well, first thing that we need to do is um, we've got to check some history things. We've got to, and, and history things are very important as well as knowing what's going to be occurring like job-wise and, you know, in the future. So I want to make sure that your credit history is good. Um, there are minimum credit scores based on uh, whatever loan program it is that you qualify for. Right now, um, our minimum credit score is a 600 for FHA and for, um, for conventional at 620. Um, a USDA at 620 and VA is, is 600 as well. So, um, so we got to have your credit history. Good. Um, if, if, and one thing that I like to do with first time homebuyers, sometimes they have no idea what their credit looks like. So I'm just, I, so we, I just say, well, let's just take a snapshot, look at this and see if you're ready to buy now or if we need to put a time frame on it. And then um, also with Fairway, we have some tools that we can use that can um, pro provide folks with a way to enhance their credit if there is stuff that needs to be done. So we look at that history, we look at your employment history. We need to have two years worth of work history. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be in the same um, job. It's best if it's in the same industry, if there's some sort of segue um, from you know, job to, to job. So we've got to have two years of history. We've got to have good credit history. And um, then, you know, you've got to just have the, the means to be able to afford what it is that you're trying to buy when you look at your debt to income ratios. Um, and, and then also, you know, there's some, we can get into the weeds with a lot of income stuff, um, you know, with as far as like self-employed borrowers and such, because, you know, there's, there's some additional things that we have to look at with that. Um, but that's, those are the main things that we're going to look at with credit history employment history and then if you're you know working in a job is that job likely to continue or is it something that's temporary and we you know look at those sort of things yeah absolutely now i'm sure right now too that with uh you know with what's going on in the economy with covid and everything else that that's something that um you kind of see a little bit of a, a shift with a lot of people i'm sure that's a common question with you know people getting laid off or changing careers or coming out of education and moving into careers so um yeah thank you for for kind of clearing that up so 
you know, we, we would assume that all of our listeners who are in our local area would give you a call if they're looking for mortgage lending assistance. But um, let's say, you know, maybe they're not in our local area. How can they go about finding a good mortgage lender? So you're going to want to um, you know, do, do your research. If you're working with a real estate professional, which I recommend, you know, doing that as, as well right off the bat. But you're going to want to, that um, they'll usually have their list of folks that they have worked with in the past that have done a good job. So, um, and they'll kind of listen to you and kind of figure out what your needs are and what type of personality you have and kind of fit you with the right one of their partners to work with. So if you start with a, a real estate professional, they can get you in two and one. Also read the reviews. Everybody out there, if they've been in the business and they've had any time in the business, they should have some reviews out there as well. And so you'll be able to tell, you know, who has consistent reviews that say that they were helpful. They worked well time home buyers. They, you know, really helped me along in the process. Um, to, I take those to heart because it's very important. Great. And also, you know, find someone who, um, when you're looking for uh, a lender as well, can they close me? What are their turn times? Is this something that I get into the process with them and, you know, 45 days later, they're still delaying the process? Or if they tell me they can close me in 30 days, if they close me in 30 days. So that's important to know as well. And that's, that's a lot of that's reputation with, um, you know, in the real estate industry as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say this, you know, at, at Fairway, we do have some of the very fastest turn times. Um, you know, we're, our, our hiccup right now is only with appraisals. Um, they're generally, that's going to be kind of the slowdown in the process right now, because it's just such a backlog of, um, of uh, appraisal orders. They're, they're the ones that are backed up. So we have to kind of look at our turn times based on that, that um, we do consistently make closing times. So Shelley, one of the things that just popped into my mind just a second ago is you, you mentioned appraisals. Uh, and what we noticed is like with the week that we had, uh, that everything was frozen, everything got pushed back a week, including uh, surveys. Are you also seeing delays in closings uh, due to surveys? The surveys, yes, there have actually had one that um, we had to back off or back up because it was a new build and they have their particular survey company that they're using. Um, so most of the time or a good portion of the time, we don't have to have new appraisals ordered because they've gotten a lot more. Um, we can use the existing appraisals many more times than not. So um, it's, it's rare, but like with new builds and stuff right now, things are backed up with surveys too. Yeah. Okay. Right. Awesome. <clears throat> so uh, after you get the verification of employment done from the lender side and you've gotten all the other pre-approval criteria kind of sorted out that we just discussed, let's kind of talk about what are some of the different loan options that are available to the borrowers. You mentioned VA, USDA, uh, FHA, and conventional. Um, so kind of let's dig a little bit deeper into those and, and let our listeners understand what's the difference between all those loan programs. Sure. So, um, so let's start with um, the conventional. Conventional is going to be your, um, you know, just pretty much run-of-the-mill um, uh, loan type that you can have. That that um, is, it's probably one of the easier ones to qualify for. But it's um, it's got several different options as far as for down payment. If you're a first-time homebuyer, you can get away with three percent down payment if you can qualify. Then you know you can do anywhere up to wh whatever you want to put up to. You have, you'll have mortgage insurance involved until you get up to the 20%. And um, conventional, you're allowed to do primary residence. Um, you can use a, buy a second home using conventional loan or investment property. 
that's the only type of loan that you can do if you're going to do something other than a primary residence. All the government products, VA, FHA, USDA, all of those require those to be your primary residence. So um, the, the minimum down payment requirement, like I said, first time home buyer is 3%. If you already currently own a home, it's 5%. If you're gonna buy an investment property and it's just a single family unit, that's 15% down. FHA, um, that's a great program. The um, credit score uh, requirement is a little hundred, and um, the minimum down payment for that is three and a half percent. You do have mortgage insurance with that for the life of the loan. It's um, it's not something that that goes away, um, but it is it's great for first time home buyers because the the down payment um, limits are are, are low. It's, you don't have to have that much down. USDA is a program that is based on um, income, there's income limits, there's geographical limits, and um, there's, it's a little bit stricter on the, the credit. And also you can't have a lot of money saved up as well with USDA, um, but it's zero down. The mortgage insurance on that is, is considered an annual fee. It's not really actually mortgage insurance and it's pretty low too. So if you can qualify for USDA, it is a fabulous program because it's zero down. And then you've got your um, VA program for um, folks who have, you know, either been in the service or they are currently serving. Um, and there's there's a lot of requirements for that as far as you know military service, and we could get into the weeds with that. But if if you you know have a DD two fourteen and you have you know VA benefits avail available to you, uh, more than likely you have um, availability to use the home program as well. And that's a zero down. There is no mortgage insurance with that, and the debt to income ratios that we can use on VA are a little bit higher, so you can get a little bit higher of a price point, so it's a little bit easier to qualify for as well. We wanna make sure that we take very good care of our, our current service members and, and also veterans as well with that. Um, and the minimum credit score requirements um, for VA 600 right now, and this varies from lender to lender, because um, there are some folks that have different overlays that say, you know, we will only you know lend to this credit score or whatever, but with Fairway it's 600 for VA, um, 600 for FHA, 620 for um, uh, USDA, and 624 conventional loans. So, um, and and pretty much across the board, you know, you, you got to have your two years in your employment history. You've got to have, you know, good credit history, but there's some things in the programs that allow for some variances depending on, you know, a person's situation. Best thing to do is get with, um, you know, with and someone in the, in the lending industry and ask all the questions. Someone that's, you know, that's going to take their time with you to answer, to figure out your situation and look at each one of the programs to determine which one is best for you. Now, also on top of that, there's also um, some different down payment assistance programs that we have available to us as well. Some of those you have to be a first-time home buyer for. Some of them you don't have to be a first-time home buyer for. But there are income um, requirements based on geography. Every county has a different income limit, um, and so um, but those can provide what's you know the minimum down payment. They they can help with that. There's different levels of assistance, and so there's they have different interest rates uh, attached to them. But if you can qualify for those programs, the minimum credit score for those is a 620. So you can qualify for those. Sometimes you can get in the home, even if there's a required down payment for the loan program, you can get in with zero down or close to zero down. Wow. So Shelly, I have two quick questions for you. Uh, first okay. of all, if you could uh, explain to us what uh, mortgage insurance is 
And then secondly, uh, and I already know the answer to this, but I'd like our listeners to try to find out too. Uh, for the various loan programs, and I'm thinking specifically of USDA, uh, isn't it true that the property also has to qualify for that loan and not just the individual? Yes. So for for so for the second question, since um, just asked that one. So for that question, yes. Um, for USDA, it has to be located in a geographical area that is um, approved by USDA. It's a rural housing program. And so um, you can look at it by address. There's a, a website that you're um, looked at by address to determine if that particular property is located inside of a USDA approved area. Um, and it's basically, you know, in a nutshell, it's areas with populations of less than 50,000. And those are the property areas that are um, the USDA eligible. Yes. So, and the first question you asked me again. Uh, mortgage insurance. Uh, mortgage, mortgage insurance. Can you explain to us okay. what that is? So um, anytime you um, borrow money and you're putting down less than 20% with either FHA or conventional. Um, FHA, um, it's not private mortgage insurance, it's just mortgage insurance. And that stays the life of the loan. It's a, it's a fixed percentage that stays the life of the loan with the FHA mortgage. But conventional, anytime you put down less than 20%, there is mortgage in insurance involved. It's based on your credit score. So if you've got a higher credit score, your mortgage insurance is gonna be less than if you um, have a, a lower credit score. It's based on risk. So uh, essentially, so um, the, the more you put down, the less your mortgage insurance is. And it's really and truly borrower specific because it's going to look at things like your debt to income ratios. It's going to look at your credit score. It's going to look at, um, you know, your, your credit history. It, it just looks at so many things and then the amount of, you know, down payment that you're putting down. So it's, it's very subjective per borrower. So, so basically, if I understand you correctly, as long as a person puts down more than 20%, 20% or more, they do not have to pay mortgage insurance. But if they put down anything less than that, they're going to be paying for mortgage insurance under uh, the FHA or conventional loans. However, USDA and VA loans do not require that. Is that correct? So VA loans have no mortgage insurance whatsoever. Um, there, there is a, a fund, if you have zero percentage of disability, there is a funding fee that's involved that's somewhat like mortgage insurance, but it's something that's tacked onto the loan. It's not something that you pay for on a, on a monthly basis. USDA does not have mortgage insurance, but they have got an annual fee, and that annual fee is 0.35% of your loan amount, and so it's very minimal. Um, it's it's not called mortgage insurance. It's called their annual fee, but it's kind of like their version of mortgage insurance, if that makes sense. Yes. Technically, mortgage insurance. So what does mortgage insurance protect against? Um, you know, insurance, typically it's implied that it, it's uh, for the benefit of the buyer. So I want our listeners to kind of understand what does that mortgage insurance really do? So the mortgage insurance is not protecting the, the borrower. It's actually protecting the lender. Because if you're putting down less than 20%, that's considered a layer of risk. And so the mortgage insurance ensures the mortgage company that those payments are going to be, you know, made on time. The mortgage is going to, you know, get paid and, and carried out as intended. And so the less amount of skin you've got in the game, the more risk it's considered. And so that mortgage insurance does protect the, the lender, not the, the borrower. Right. Yeah, that's what I wanted to touch on, just so that, uh, you know, everybody understands that it, it, the reason why it fluctuates so much from borrower to borrower is because of 
the amount of risk that the borrower is actually putting up. And that's why it actually plays a factor into how much that mortgage insurance will actually end up costing you. Um, and there was one other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on because it's uh, something that comes up pretty commonly, especially um, with buyers in kind of my age pool in the you know early 20s, uh, late 20s area um, is student loans. How do student loans impact uh, a borrower's ability to qualify for a loan? I know there's a lot of misconceptions about they don't count against you or they do count against you. So uh, kind of clear that up for our listeners, please. Sure. Well, it actually varies completely by loan program that you use. Every loan program has a different rule for student loans. Right now, most student loans are deferred. So when we open up a credit report, it says zero payment. So if somebody can give us a documentation that it is zero payment on some loan programs that work, some loan programs, we still have to count a payment in there. So looking at FHA, pretty straightforward. It's like un kind of unbendable on that. Um, if you if you're doing an FHA loan, unless the um, the the payment indicates otherwise and in a higher way, um, we have to count one percent of the balance for every student loan that you've got. One percent of that goes in counting into your debt to income ratios. Um, if we're locking you with conventional, um, two two different ways we can go with conventional. One's Fannie Mae, one's Freddie Mac. There's just the two different um, the government institutions that are doing conventional loans. Um, Fannie Mae, there's different rules with that. Sometimes we can count a zero payment if there's documentation. Um, if, if there's no documentation, there's no payment, we count 1%. Um, if the payment on the, the credit report does not indicate higher. On, with Freddie Mac, we count half a percent. With USDA, we count half a percent. And then with, um, with VA, it's a, little, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different of a formula with that as well. And sometimes like if, if your payments are deferred, we can, with some programs, we can not count the payments. With some other programs, we still have to count the payments. So it's it's very, um, it's pretty complicated. It's one of those kind of things whenever I get a credit report that's got a lot of student loans, I, you know, my, my wheels immediately start turning, okay, which, which way are we going to be able to go with this to be able to get you the best loan program? Because, you know, either we have to really worry about the debt to income levels, or we can say, oh, well, we can be flexible with it. But um, it's, it's one of those variables that does play a factor into how much you can qualify for definitely. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> awesome. Well, thank you for all of that. Um, so uh, something else that, you know, a lot of people tend to wonder about is like first time buyer assistance, special loan types and things of that nature. So, um, you know, I know some of the loan types that we've discussed already are a little bit more beneficial for first time home buyers, but what are some of the other um, programs, I guess, that first time home buyers can take advantage of? Sure. So um, with the first time home buyer program programs, so um, a lot of, or most of them are income specific. So you have to be under specific income level for the majority of them. The one loan program that's available to everyone, um, you know, depending on credit score and such, is um, if you're going conventional, you only have to put 3% down. So it limits what your required um, investment is on the property if you're going conventional. That's pretty much across the board. As long as you can qualify for a credit score and, you know, your uh, all the, the risk levels, then that's something that's available to everyone, no matter what your income is. Now, the, the other programs, the mortgage credit certificate, that is a, a, a program that actually helps save you on your taxes. Um, it, it's a, on, on our end of it, we can use it to kind of boost your income for qualification, but on, um, and that's because you're saving money every year for taxes. It, it helps you take advantage of more interest um, 
uh, savings on your on your taxes at the end of the year. And something I encourage you to Google look at mortgage credit certificates, see if it's something that you want to do. There's fees associated with it, but it has income limits. So you, and that's by county. So um, depending on what county you're purchasing in, um, you have to, if you are income limit for that, then you can potentially qualify for the mortgage credit certificate. Takes a look at all household income and it makes sure that you haven't owned property for the last three years. That's the qualifications for that. Then the other down, there's other down payment assistance programs that are also um, first time home buyer um, as, as well. Um, and some of those are um, Texas Department of Housing Associates, TDHCA has some really good programs. The interest rates are pretty darn low and second lien programs for first time home buyers. Um, and then, so those are the main things for first-time home buyers. Um, if you make a, a, a ton of money and um, you're probably not going to qualify for a lot of the first-time home buyer programs, other than being able to put down less on a conventional loan. So uh, I know a lot of people think that there's just programs out there that will just, you know, just give you money no matter what because you're a first-time home buyer. And, you know, yes, there, but there are some, you know, stipulations for that. And the credit score, minimum credit score is a 620 for those programs. Uh, pretty much across the board. Gotcha. So, so thanks, Shelly. That, that's been extremely helpful. Um, but I kind of wanted to transition over to one other thing that I get the questions for all the time. And I know you as a lender get them probably a heck of a lot more than I do. So as a buyer, and it doesn't matter if it's first time buyer or 50th time buyer, seems like the more they buy, the more complicated this process becomes, to be honest with you. What documentation is going to be required by the buyer? Because I know it's not just a couple of little documents in an ID card. There's got to be more to it than that. Can you explain to us some of that? Oh, sure. Yes. So that's that's the most fun part of my job. Let me tell you, asking for that documentation, because everyone's just so ready to just open it all up and load it up. Uh, so, so. And on the back of my card, I've got my little list. So it's always going to be a photo ID and a social security card. If you don't have a social security card, we can always order verification. So that's not a stopper. Then we're going to have to have two months worth of bank statements. And those bank statements need to be for, um, you know, the earnest money funds that you're going to be putting down on the, on the purchase. And then also for any down payment that, so if you're taking, if you're taking your, I want to make this simple have all your down payment money come from one source because if you have 14 different accounts and you're transferring money between those accounts and you're going to use all that stuff, I can have all 14 of those accounts and trace all the transfers. So that's not as much fun as it sounds, but uh, so we've got uh, ID, social security card, two months, I need to have two years worth of your W-2s and 1099s. And if you're doing a down payment assistance program, I have to have three years worth because they've got to prove that, you know, you in, you haven't been a homeowner uh, for three years. So we have to have three years of that. We've got to have um, three years worth of tax returns if you are um, a first-time home buyer, two years worth of tax returns if you are just um, not qualifying for one of those programs. Um, then we've got to have copies of your earnest money, copies of your, um, um, yeah, your whenever that, that flows through your account, and we've got to know what whose insurance, who your insurance can be. On top of that, that's like baseline, the, the, the basically the, those things that we have to have. Then if you own property, then there's there's uh, things that we'll need for that, like mortgage statements and things like that. If you have rental property, we gotta have copies of leases and stuff. So, so depending on what your situation is, the, the documentation level could be you know pretty simple or it could get pretty complex, but we start out with those first, you know, 
basic things, two months' pay statements, photo ID, social security card, um, two years' worth of um, W-2s and your tax returns. So, um, and I, I really do try to keep it as simple as I possibly can. So if someone starts unloading a very complicated situation, I try to unpack that back and say, wait, hang on, can we do without this portion of your income uh, on the qualification if we can? That's going to save us a lot of documentation and a lot of heartache with all of that, trying to get that through underwriting. I want to make it as simple as I can for the client, then for my team processing it, the underwriter going through everything and then getting you through the closing table. So um, just try to try to keep it as simple as possible. doesn't always seem like it. It always seems like there's a lot more to it than, than simple. Nobody looks at this as the stuff that I say and say, oh, that was so easy because there's usually something like if you... You have a, I mean, just for example, so like if, if you have a um, bank, we present a bank statement, so we've only asked for your two months of bank statements, but then we see that you deposited, you know, $15,000 from something, you know, it could have been from the sale of a car or whatever, all of a sudden now we need documentation for that because it's, um, it's just the requirements of, of the industry. We have to be able to document, you know, large things coming in and out of the account. So yeah, it's fun, fun stuff. It's the most, most fun part of my day. <laughs> so I have I have another quick question for you because I, I know there's got to be something out there that pops up uh, for you as a lender on a regular basis that just kind of drives you nuts. Uh, not necessarily drives you nuts, but kind of like there's got to be something. What is it? What is that thing? Uh, I, get, I guess it's whenever um, it, you kind of almost want to look at your lender like you do in a... Um, uh, um, like a doctor or whatever, you want to tell them everything and then let the lender sort out. I don't like to find out about something that I didn't know about. Like, um, you know, they, uh, it's, it's the large deposits really that get me. Oh, oh no, no, no. This is, this is, this is, I just thought cash for your earnest money. That's, that's the big thing. And they're like, but wait, I got a cashier's check for that. I put down $5,000 because a cashier's check, but well, where did that money come from? I have to be able to trace that. And so if you've gotten a cashier's check for your, for your earnest money, I all of a sudden, and, and it was from cash, not something out of an account, that's perfectly allowed. If you've pulled money out of your account, we can document, that's great. But if you went to your safe and you pulled out $5,000 of cash, and then you went to go get a cashier's check, all of a sudden that's $5,000 I can't count in the transaction. And that could mean you don't qualify because we needed that cash for either reserves or just to show that you had enough money to come to the table with. So yeah, that's, that's the most, that's really fun. Uh, can you explain to me what loan to value ratio means? I know that's kind of yeah, random but, and out there, but I'm just curious. Sure. So loan to value, loan to value means what the, what the house is worth versus what you're borrowing. So when you start out in a transaction, the loan to value is based on the sales price. So if you've got a sales price of, you know, 400,000 and your loan amount is 320, that's a, an 80% loan to value, okay? And that stands as long as throughout the process when you get the appraisal, you get that appraisal in and that appraisal is either at or higher than the sales price, same loan to value. When the loan to value changes is say you're, you get a, you under contract for 400, your, um, your appraisal comes in at 350. Now your new loan to value is based on the 350 because that's under the sales price. So then now all of a sudden your $320,000 loan to the $350,000 value is not an 80-20 value anymore. 
So if you want to keep that 80-20 value, you've got to go down in loan amount, which means you've got to bring more cash to, to closing if that's the case. Or you just adjust and you adjust your loan to value down to 5% or 10% or you know whatever the, the case may be, whatever you can afford. But, but that's, yeah, loan to value sales price to start with. And then if, it's, if the appraisal comes in at or above, stays. If the appraisal comes in lower than your loan to value, then becomes whatever your appraised value is. And people need to keep that into consideration whenever they're talking about going over asking, you know, in in um, in this crazy market that we're in, um, because that that could end up uh, hurting you if you don't have the the what you need to take to keep your either keep your loan to value or um, you know adjust it depending on your situation. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to back it up just for a second before we move on. Um, and, you know, we talked about documentation. How does the documentation differ for somebody who's, say, W-2 versus somebody who's like us, self-employed, 1099? Um, you know, there's a lot of gig workers out there nowadays as well. So um, how, how does that differ in terms of documentation and the complication of the process? Sure. So if you're a straight W-2 employee and I'm trying to, you know, get the information for your, your income, um, so I, I'm going to look at your, your W-2 situation and I'm going to look at your pay stubs and that's going to give me the whole picture of what I need for your, um, your, the, the documentation I need for your income. If you are a self-employed borrower, your income is de determined by how you file your taxes. So, um, if you claim, you know, a lot of deductions on your tax returns and that brings your, you know, taxable income way down. Um, then I've got to use what you do on your use on your tax returns. So that's very important. So we, if you're doing your, if you're self-employed, we've got to have tax returns. We've got to have um, for two years, we can have a profit and loss. We have to have, um, um, if you have your own business, we've got to have business bank statements for three months. And we have to make sure, especially during, during this COVID years or year, um, I don't want to drag it out. Um, <laughs> Um, we also have to make sure that where you were at um, for income for 2019, like 2020 didn't take a nosedive because then all of a sudden we, we, that income doesn't look stable. So there's a lot of considerations. The profit and loss has to be very consistent with, um, with what you've done in the past. So those kinds of things just have to, we just have to prove that your income is stable and just takes a little bit more to it. One thing I didn't say on the required documentation was pay stubs. That is something else we have to have 30 days worth of pay stubs. I apologize. I left that off. So that's on there too. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, and, and so if you're just W-2, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. We just have to make sure that your pay stub income matches what your W-2 is and what, what we show in the file for what you're going to have, you know, that we can qualify you on. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so moving on now, let's kind of talk about, you know, this is something that we hear horror stories about all the time. I'm sure you deal with it a lot more than what we hear about it, but um, let's talk about some of the things. What are some of the, we'll talk diligence and discipline. What are some of the should do's and absolutely should not do's as a borrower when you're in the process under contract on a home and working on getting a loan? Sure. So um, let's start with the should, should not do's. You should not have any more credit inquiries. Do not go out and buy furniture while you're in the process or even go apply for a Kohl's card. We don't want to do that while you're in the process because if, you're, if you have a credit inquiry, then now we've got to you know, look at all that stuff. So you don't want to um, open up any new credit. 
you don't want to be transferring large sums of money in between bank accounts because that's whenever we get into some documentation um, issues as well, things that people don't want to explain. Um, you don't want to take in any cash deposits. Um, you want to make sure that you're like, you don't want to, if your income is based on, you know, a variable income, especially, you do not want to just take off vacation or something and, you know, as you're shopping for a home and your income all of a sudden drops. So you want your income to stay uh, consistent. You don't want large in and out deposits. You don't want to, you know, no new credit, no new liabilities. Those are the, the main things. Um, and then make sure that you are, um, you're, you're keeping your, your um, balances in your bank as high as they can be. Do not have any, um, you know, uh, NSF fees. That's, that's a big thing that can um, throw a hiccup in the process. Um, just want to be consistent. You want to be consistent with um, uh, making sure that your, um, your reserves stay up, your, um, your credit stays good, and you're not increasing your liabilities. Those are the main, main issues. Yeah, so patience. Um, I can tell you right off the top of my head, uh, the last probably four or five loans that I've had, especially with regards to uh, new buyers, uh, patience is one of the things that is, is a tough deal for a lot of buyers. And, you know, I know it's frustrating uh, once a person has applied for a loan or a couple and here they are anticipating uh, purchasing their home. And here we are three or four days away from closing. And all of a sudden the underwriter says, and this is usually transferred through the, the loan officer, uh, but the underwriter says, we can't approve the loan based on X, Y, Z. Now, I have heard this literally the last three first-time buyers that I dealt with. We had exactly that phrase come back to us. Underwriting can't approve the loan based on X, Y, Z. And every single time X, Y, Z was nothing more than they needed to get a, another document. And with that particular document or letter of explanation, it makes that hiccup or that problem the underwriting discovered basically go away because there's an explanation for it. So what do you feel or what is your ex or your, your take on uh, buyers and uh, their frustrations uh, regarding this process, specifically when it comes from underwriting and we're just days away from closing? Yeah, so um, most of the time or a lot of the time that stuff could be um, avoided like three or four days before closing if the loan officer has done their due diligence and getting everything up front um, sometimes it's unavoidable, though, because we have to, like, get, get things in the process, such as a bank statement showing that your earnest money has cleared out of the account. And so sometimes getting that additional bank statement will bring up a question or something that we have to do. Um, sometimes these things are, you know, somewhat unavoidable um, because, you know, things come up in pay stubs or, or, or whatever. I say be patient with the process. If your loan officer asks you for something, um, be very quick to respond and get it get it to them so as to not delay the process any any, any further, and um, and just understand that the loan officer wants nothing more than and the underwriter really wants nothing more than to get this get you through the process and get you into your home. They're not trying to throw up a hard stop to say we don't want you to have this house. It's just a matter of we know that on the back end of this, if we don't get this documentation that on the back end of this, this is gonna come back, could come back to bite us. And they have to, underwriters have, you know, they've got to prove everything. Everything has to be in writing. And so whether or not it, it comes across as if it, you know, well, this should be explained by this. Well, 
maybe, but there's specific rules for the documentation that's needed depending on the situation. And that underwriter has to be able to have that particular document that answers that particular issue. And once it's provided, it's it's done and it's and it's 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 over. There's just a lot of documentation that goes into um, loaning. We're, we're loaning hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, you know, if you look at it that way, um, you're, you're getting, you know, two or three, four hundred thousand dollars from the lender. That lender has to do their due diligence to make sure that everything is buttoned up and the loan is going to be, you know, you're going to be able to have the ability to, to repay. And we've done our due diligence, getting everything we need to satisfy, you know, ultimately the investor that's going to take a look at it, at, you know, after everything is closed. So just be patient and um, and work with your loan officer to get, get those documentation documents, even though it might seem excessive. It's, it's just what's required of the process, unfortunately. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thanks for that explanation. Awesome. Well, I wish um, it were easier. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, we totally understand. We understand being in the in the business, of course. So hopefully uh, today's episode was was good for our listeners, that they got some good information to kind of understand what the process is like. Um, so now we want to kind of take a few minutes, uh, give our listeners an opportunity to get to know Shelly as a person. Uh, so we've got a few questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So Shelly, what was the first concert that you ever went to? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I think it was John Schneider and Alabama at the Frank Irwin Center. And that was when John Schneider was like in between Dukes of Hazards and whatever it is that he's doing now. He was just kind of like the, he was the opening act for Alabama. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Awesome. So uh, what is one of your favorite hobby or hobbies? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a worker. I don't have much time for a, a whole lot of hobbies. I do like to spend time outdoors, you know, walking when the weather is beautiful. And I, I, I'm such a, a Georgetown fanatic that I spend a lot of time walking the square and, and going in and out of the shops and trying to support local. To me, that's kind of a passion of mine because I love to see this downtown here in Georgetown thrive. And so that's something that's very important to me. I love to talk to people about, you know, Georgetown and, you know, all the things of it. I, I do a lot of volunteering for the city as well, too. Was I was on the Main Street Advisory Board and, you know, we've done do things to, um, you know, raise money for downtown. So that, that, I guess, I don't know, is that a hobby? It's just something I like to do, so. I, I would call it a hobby. And you know what? I think that'd make for a great topic on a, on a future episode. We'll have to have you on for Georgetown Happenings or something like that to let our listeners know what's so great about Georgetown, right? Oh, I, 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 we got more than 40 minutes for that one, right? <laughs> oh, we'll have to make sure of it, won't we? <laughs> um, so Shelly, who is the most memorable person that you've ever met? Uh, most memorable person that I have ever met. Um, so, okay, this is going to be really silly and, and, and dumb. Um, but so whenever I was a teenager, one of my best friends took, used to take me to, to wrestling. The, I don't know if you know the Von Eric brothers, but we got to go backstage as, as a junior hire 
go backstage with and and meet these wrestlers. I mean, I haven't lived that you know interesting of a life, but uh, that was that was probably the most fun that I got to take get autograph pictures and stuff like that. I don't know. That was that was that was fun for me. So I will say this: I, I do have some um, notoriety as far as like who I'm related to, and that is um, uh, Johnny Cash. So my grandfather was June Carter Cash's second cousin. So I claim relation to Johnny Cash. <laughs> that is really really cool. I'm a big fan of never Johnny Cash. Him. Yeah, never met him, but I am somewhat related. Hey, well, that's still really cool, right? <laughs> um, so what is the most exotic place that you've ever traveled to? Um, you know, I haven't done a lot of traveling, but I think the most enjoyable place that I ever traveled to was Washington, D.C. I did that several years ago and um, got to see all the, the Mall of America, which I was almost confused about, like, where's the mall? Did figure that out, though, while I was there. Um, and uh, it got to see all of the museums and stuff like that. It was really cool to see all the the history and just um, it's a great place to visit if you if you haven't ever just to, just you know you see all these things on the news and then you go there and you're like oh wow this is really as as you know as beautiful and and um, interesting and historical as you might can imagine. It's really it was a really cool place to visit. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been to Washington, D.C. We went uh, for a school trip when I was very young. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and I think that's the last time I've been out there, but I definitely would love to go back and be able to soak up some of the some of the history and culture nowadays. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I was so, old enough to appreciate it, so. What's that? I was old enough to appreciate it when I went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. At, at that young age, it, a lot of it just goes over your head, doesn't it? Yes. <clears throat> Um, all right. And uh, so, Shelly, what is going to be the best way for our listeners to reach you? So um, I, I'm, I'm online. I've got a website, loansbyshellyr.com. Um, I'm sure in, in the comments on my comment, on my uh, uh, personal information will be in there as far as my phone number. Do you want me to give my phone number? Um, I, I can, but uh, that's, that's the uh, best way to get a hold of me. Um, and you can apply online there. I can, um, my, my, all my contact information is there. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'm happy to answer questions. If somebody just has, even if you're not working with me and you want to know how something works or if something should work, I am happy to give my, you know, opinion or advice on, on you know, your personal situation. So um, I, I enjoy answering those kinds of questions. Awesome. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for your time and for your service to the community. Uh, you know, we definitely appreciate everything that you've done for us and our clients. And I'm sure that, um, you know, everybody that you work with will have, would have all the same raving reviews. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak to our listeners today about all this information. Uh, we really are, are super happy to have you on today. And uh, thank you all of our listeners for taking the time to enjoy the episode. Um, if there's anything else that you want to hear about, we'd love to hear, you know, comments, reviews. Let us know what you want us to talk about next. And uh, we hope you all have a great week. Thanks again for tuning into the Chapel Real Estate Show. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Chapel Real Estate Show. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a review. Find us on social media at Chapel Realty Group and online at chapelrealtygroup.com. Until next time.